Your individual parenting decisions have power. Today, we're going to examine how your individual decisions affect the greater good. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Stay tuned. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Janet Allison of boysalive.com and Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net. Listeners, you have heard us mention Janet's Decoding Your Boy program before. Maybe you didn't need it the first time you heard us talk about it. Think about the most recent thing that your son did that baffled you, confused you, and had you in tears. I guarantee that this is something that Janet will be addressing, personalized coaching, connecting with other parents. And connecting with me. I love, love, love talking directly with parents and troubleshooting. And do I have all the answers all the time? No, but we usually come up with some strategy and some new perspective that is going to help you decode your boy. Check out her Decoding Your Boy program, go to boysalive.com slash decode. You can join at any point during the year, which means the next time your kid is driving you crazy, go to boysalive.com slash decode. And now on boys. Sure. We want to build boys. But we also want to build a just world, one in which all humans have the opportunity to thrive. It's typically easier said than done. And frankly, the obstacles between our current reality and a just world can sometimes seem so great and so in need of systemic policy reform that it's easy to toss up our hands and think that there's nothing that we can do. But the individual choices that we make as parents are powerful. So today we are talking with Sarah Jaffe, author of Wanting What's Best, Parenting, Privilege, and Building a Just World. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. This is big, big picture stuff. To say you want to write a book about parenting and privilege and the intersection and how that all leads to a just world. How did you come to say, I'm going to tackle this? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's definitely a a huge topic. Um, And I I think the the book grew out of um, the experience that I had. At the time I became a parent, I was an attorney for kids in foster care. And I had, you know, been 
very troubled, of course, in my years before I became a parent, by what I was seeing happen to those kids, you know, the the things we all hear about, you know, the multiple placements, the abuse while in care, um, the kind of overloaded caseworkers, all of that. But when I became a parent myself and started kind of hanging out with my peer group of parents who are mostly, you know, fairly reasonably well-off um, people in Brooklyn, that's who I consider my my own peer group, um, and just seeing the, the gap between what was happening to the kids in foster care and the mm-hmm. kids of, you know, of my daughter's, my daughter's peer babies, if you will, um, yeah. Was was very very striking, yeah. um, and that's kind of like the germ of the idea that made me um, interested in looking at and feeling like you know something is just really wrong here with the level of anxiety that my that parents in my peer group are feeling versus the kind of overall societal lack of concern about foster kids that was troubling to me, and so I was interested in talking to and interviewing parents who are thinking about that kind of juxtaposition and interplay. I can see how disorienting that must have been for you. And certainly this isn't about you, but when you are spending your professional days, you know, and you are immersed in this world and these are kids who are dealing with some really tough stuff by the time they're, you know, school age, they've gone through perhaps multiple homes or experienced some really traumatic things And then you look up for a moment in your personal life and you've got people debating, you know, which stroller to buy. And you're like, "Ah, that's really not the big parenting choice that you need to worry about. Yeah, totally. And it's not like I, you know, I was also concerned about what stroller to buy. Like I also felt myself getting caught up in that mindset, even while being kind of like you know, having this, the cognitive dissonance you're talking about. And, and so that, that was also part of what I guess inspired me to write the book. And then the book is interviews with, with the majority of the book is interviews with other people, other parents and other people's stories. So wanting to find out, you know, is, is this, this is, this must be something other people think about and other people are seeing. Um, And it turns out it very much is. Yeah. Well, and I was really struck by this recognition of, and I don't think I ever thought about this when I was raising my kids of like the decisions I'm making are affecting other kids, those kids, it's the haves and have nots. And I'm not sure I ever thought about that when I was raising my kids of how is this decision affecting those other kids over there who don't have the privilege that I acknowledge that I had. Yeah, well, and it, it is it is hard to see because we tend to live in a very siloed society, you know, where we spend time with people approximately at our income level who look like us. You know, that's just the way um, our culture kind of is for most Americans. And so it is it feels very attenuated. And meanwhile, you have your own kid right in front of you and you want to um, to be the best parent you can for them, which which I certainly, the book is not about how to not do that, but, <laughs> right. Yes. but yeah, I don't, I don't think that's uncommon at all or, or some, you know, un, unusual experience. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're not encouraged to think that way. 
So let's break this down a little bit. Let's use some examples to help people understand and get into this a little more. So help us understand the link between parenting and our parenting choices, our parenting actions, and building a just world. So how do my parenting choices play into all of this? Yeah, so I it, I think it it happens in different ways in, in different um, systems, but I'll kind of give uh, two big picture examples. One is in schools, um, particularly currently, you know, public schools, are and we, we I think I've been sort of hearing this my whole life so it feels like oh you know just another year another public school crisis but like they really are in crisis now it's really you know enrollment is down um significant cuts have been made in many states funding um, has not kept being, pace not at, at all, all with expenses yeah. in most places I mean Absolutely. school funding these days is worse than what it was and if you're even marginally paying attention yes. as a parent, you are well aware that the demand and what schools are called upon to do and handle, the need is greater than it was. Yes, very well put. Um, exactly. So if you are, the, the, the way you're sort of encouraged to navigate this, if you're a parent with some degree of, you know, of economic privilege, is that you, you either go private or you get them into a particular public school with a well-funded PTA that can fill in all the gaps, you know, that the state has left. And sometimes those gaps are literally teachers. So some places have restrictions on what PTA can, um, money can be used for, but not all of them. And so that is, you know, a kind of a way that navigates around the problem, but does not actually address the problem. And in this book, I talk to parents who are just trying to think a little bigger than that and, and tackle the problem more head on. If, for example, the parents I interview in Evanston, Illinois, have, after significant effort, you know, many years, moved their school district to a model where all the schools share in a big pot of PTA funding. So it's not this disparity that we see anymore, which is, which is really exciting, you know, they end um, and one of them had kids at a school where that school's going to have less money, you know, at the end of the day, like that's not directly benefiting. She was, her kids and her family were doing fine with the the previous model, but it just didn't, it didn't sit right with her. It felt like, you know, why, why should the, the school, you know, a few zip codes over have so much less um, yeah. than the school my kids go to? It almost sounds like in that circumstance, and, and perhaps a thread that flows through all of this is having some sort of definition and understanding within ourselves of enough, you know, mm -hmm. what's enough. Sure. Her kid's school is in real dollars or in, you know, percentage, even getting less funds from the PTA. I'm guessing that there is plenty for those kids needs to be met. Like we're not actually taking away anything that's causing harm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that is a great point and, and very difficult because we are encouraged as kind of parent consumers that there's never enough, you know, you've, yeah. you, you can never uh, have your child too prepared and have too much 
you know, too many learning based toys and too much tutoring, <laughs> all of that, you know, someone is always around the corner trying to sell you those things. Yeah. Um, particularly if you're in the income bracket that I am, it's just kind of relentless, you know, and they prey on fears that it's, that it's not enough that, <laughs> that you're a failure to have, to get, you know, such and such product or such and such experience will be the thing that really sinks your kid. Um, I'm thinking about it in terms of higher education right now, for instance, and that's because my kids are at that age, right? So when we talk about enough, the message that preys on our fears, and there is legitimate reason we need to acknowledge this, there's legitimate reason for economic anxiety right now for cultural anxiety. It's real. And so the message that preys on our fear is like, well, a public university education is not enough. If you really want your kid to have a leg up and it's implied strongly that this leg up is necessary in this world, then your kid needs to go to a private college or an Ivy League school or all of that. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the higher education, I think, is is kind of the... The, the one of the worst defenders of all of mm-hmm. our higher education system and the way it talks to parents and kids, you know, as, as a whole um, and the consultants and tutors and the, you know, whole cottage industry around it is exactly that. I mean, it's very focused on, you know, there's only maybe 10 to 20 schools in this country that have any value whatsoever and if you're if you don't make that cut, then you're kind of doomed for for life, you know. And there's that's a, a tremendously damaging message for both kids and parents because not everyone is going to get into those schools, yes. and not everyone is college material, and they won't go to college. So there's that too. And your message also it's not just damaging for kids and parents. That message is damaging for our society. Because we have a lot of people who can expending a lot of time and energy and putting pressure on themselves and their kids, which not always, but often does lead into all kinds of issues, including elevated anxiety, depression, all these things we've talked about previously on the podcast, pouring all this time and energy into this thing that may help their kids somewhat, but all this time and energy is going in this direction. Whereas if you put even a portion of that time and energy into addressing some of these inequalities, our big picture, our whole would be stronger. A hundred percent. I think about, you know, I read the New York Times coverage of higher education quite regularly. I'm just interested in the topic. And if you read that, you really, it seems like there's maybe only four schools in the country. It's like Harvard and Princeton and who got fired from what, you know, And like, that is the majority of what they cover. I had no idea until I was writing this book, you know, that the um, financial crisis of 2008 had resulted in this huge slashing of funding to state public colleges. And that that's a huge driver of these, you know, out of control um, tuition that we see. Like, I didn't know any of that. And that's not sort of, you know, there's certain schools that are like, make the higher education news. And I, I also really didn't have a grasp um, fully on the the for-profit um, college industry or the community college, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and their lack of funding. 
um, community colleges. Not I don't I don't want to fund for profit colleges, or at least the vast majority. Um, yeah, and there it's just it's just this huge diverse system. Um, as one of the um, the parents I interviewed who started a kind of college advising core where um, recent college graduates would go into underserved high schools and be that um, college advisor for the school. Um, Cause a lot of schools, you know, they, they barely have one or they have one with, you know, one for 400 kids and, mm-hmm. you know, the private independent schools tend to have 10 for 60 kids. Yeah. <laughs> I'm probably, yeah, but um, <laughs> there's, yeah, that's a huge gap too. More of the out of balance. This episode is sponsored by By Heart. Babies need to eat. And whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about By Heart baby formula. By Heart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk. And Byheart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on Byheart have softer poops, less spit up, and easier digestion. Byheart is also the only U.S.-made infant formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider Byheart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code ONBOYS at byheart.com. That's B-Y-H-E-A-R-T dot com slash podcast. And it is 10% off your first order. Byheart.com slash podcast. This is a limited time offer and additional terms and conditions may apply. I like cute clothes. I like having stylish outfits. And I hate shopping. Armoire makes getting dressed easier. Armoire is a clothing rental membership option. And Janet and I recently have both tried it out. And you guys, it is so much fun. You go to their website. You get to take a little quick style quiz. Takes five minutes. And then you get presented a list of beautiful clothing, pictures, wonderful clothes that you can pick out. and get delivered to your house for you to try and wear in the comfort of your own home without going out and determine what looks cute, put together outfits without investing a ton of money. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off your first month. That is up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash envoys. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E, dot style slash on boys to get 50% off your first month and never have to worry about what to wear again. Try armoire today. Um, so that's at the upper end. I want to go back to the lower end and to uh, let's talk about child care. We recently interviewed Richard V. Reeves and he was talking about yeah. our boys need an extra year before elementary school and how that trickles down into, okay, but how do we how do we provide that extra year? How do we provide the the care, the daycare that families need, families with two parents working? 
what about childcare? And if, if I'm a mom at a stay at home mom and, you know, do I really care about childcare, but what, what can I do? How can I affect the system? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, no, I'm glad you brought him up because his, his previous book, Dream Hoarders was definitely a big influence on, on this one. And I'm excited to read his new one. Childcare is another system that was already not in good shape. And then the pandemic has just really cut its legs out from under it. Um, so many, I don't have the the number in front of me, but it, a eye-popping number of childcare centers have closed across the country. And it wasn't like, you know, there were so many to begin with. <laughs> right. Um, and I see in particularly in, I'm, I'm from Seattle originally, and in, I've seen people, you know, there are find out they get a plus on the pregnancy test and they're running around trying to get themselves on wait lists. Yes. No, it's just this fierce, fierce competition. The bottom line with, with childcare, I became convinced when writing this book is that it's not, you know, we're trying to provide it as this market good where you, you know, you pay for it. And it's, it's not that it's not different. It doesn't really make any sense that from age zero to five we're in the free market. And then from age you know, from kindergarten to 12th grade, we suddenly have not not always as funded as it should be, but we do have, you know, a, a actual public system of school. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, childcare needs um, investment from the government just to work, just because it's not, you know, it's not a terribly profitable industry to we run. We don't have well. cultural recognition yet that childcare is a public good, exactly. right? You know, exactly. the whole reason, and people are arguing about it even right now in 2022, but the, the thinking behind this system of public education was this collective recognition that the education of our children, our nation's children mattered to our nation. It mattered to all mm-hmm. of us. Uh, we've not gotten there with childcare. No, no, not, a, not at all. And yeah, there's still kind of the, I think our country has a weird relationship with the idea, you know, that maybe usually the wife should just be staying home. You know, we think that funds or that causes some of the unease around Mm -hmm. (laughs) around this issue at its root. But yeah, so what actually needs to happen, you know, is, is what we got kind of close to, or at least made some strides to, is a, you know, a federally funded national system. Um, of childcare, I think Elizabeth Warren's plan is is very good on this. Well, we've had Head Start for how many decades, yes. and it's been proven it works. Mm-hmm. And we need to expand on on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right. Early childhood education. There's you can practically not find you know a, a single thing against it. <laughs> it. it it pays dividends in terms of, you know, lower rates of of everything from like homelessness to incarceration down the line. You know, there, there's just glowing studies about what it does for children's development, for um, for families' well being, all of that. We still don't see it as a public good. I think so, we need to to mention there though. It does depend on quality. You yes. know, there is uh, barely babysitting in like we're practically like we're warehousing kids and they're here and we more or less keep an eye on them and then Mm -hmm. there's nurturing and 
because of this lack of funding and because of our economic inequality and diversity, what happens in a childcare program, and I put air quotes around that, can vary so dramatically from community to community. Yeah, I think, right. We we don't see it as a public good, and we also don't see it as a hard job. We don't see it as yeah. a important job, you know, that to be done well um, is actually very, very difficult, right? It's It's way more than just warehousing children, but the, you know, the wages for Childcare workers were always bad, and now that and now that the pandemic has sort of inflated wages at places like you know Target and Home Depot, I've heard stories of childcare workers leaving for skilled sure. childcare workers, you know, who are good at their jobs, but they're not going to make eleven dollars an hour doing really hard work. To be clear, <laughs> um, when they can make fifteen somewhere else, so. There's um, the National Alliance of Domestic Workers, you know, has has lots of good information about kind of how to get involved in the the big picture federal push. But I also think what the parents in Portland, Oregon, who I talked to did um, is is awesome. And not that that wasn't also extremely difficult, but it it's maybe a little more manageable where they just acted local and they got a initiative on the ballot to make universal childcare for three and four-year-olds just in, in their particular city, in the county. Yes, thank you, thank you, yeah. They acted locally. I, I do have to say I voted for, for universal pre, pre-K, but that's, I mean, that's one county in one state in the country. Yeah. And even as I was looking at that and voting for that, it's like, okay, that's great. That's an awesome idea. We still have to have the education in place, the outreach of, hey, here's a really good job out of high school, or here's a really good job out of, you know, there ha- we have to have somebody in the classroom, in the childcare centers that are qualified, not just a body that's going to show up because I love kids. There's a lot to it. There's so much to it. Yeah. I mean, I, I really think I would have a nervous breakdown if I was in charge of a childcare um, place or a pre-K for even a single day. I don't know. I, I I really think it's it's a tremendously difficult job. And it's just in kind of how we value, we don't really value the work of raising children across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of viewed as something women are naturally good at. The majority of childcare workers are women of color and that also plays into it. Um, they're just given less respect and therefore the work they do is given less respect. So yeah, it's a it's a, a huge issue. So I, like- I love what you said, Janet. I mean, but we can't tell high school graduates that it's a good job and an important job because no. materially it is not right now. You yes. can't, you can barely support yourself, much less support a family. And it is very hard it's physically challenging. It's mentally challenging. So, you know, that is the reality. And Sarah, in your book, you write about, and we all know this, I mean, childcare workers are underpaid for what they do, for the value they have to our, to our kids' lives and therefore to our society. And yet childcare is so unbelievably, almost unobtainably expensive in so many parts of this country so even if I, as a parent, want to do better, I feel really stuck. Absolutely. I think 
I don't have a wonderful answer to that because it is kind of a impossible conundrum. I, I do think that like the way around the childcare crisis is not to underpay your nanny or, or, you know, look for the cheapest childcare option you can find that's, you know, underpaying their workers or cutting mm-hmm. their other ways to, to make it work. It feels like that's like, well, this is all impossible. And so that's kind of the path of least resistance. People only have so much money. I mean, it, it is already tremendously expensive. Um, even underpaying people which is a, mm-hmm. a hefty, hefty bill. But I kind of like the the framing some of the parents I talked to used said to, to think about kind of how you treat people who care for your kids or who work in your home or whatever else as an expression of your values. It's not just a, a math problem. It's kind of about more than that. Do do what you can um, to, you know, while we're hopefully fighting for a bigger solution that will not be dependent on individual parents' kind of goodwill and taking this on, while you're in the midst of it, we can't kind of or put the the solution kind of back on the backs of the the workers, which which I think kind of resonated with me and makes it a little easier to to write those checks when you have. So one thing that I, well, not me specifically, because my youngest is 16 and far beyond needing childcare, we as parents can do perhaps then is, first of all, I need to acknowledge that a lot of parents, you really don't have a choice. It is, this is the one place that can get my kid in. Do what you got to do. If you have a choice, if you are in a position to do so, you know, it is, worth it on so many levels to pay a little more for childcare and go out to eat a little less. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. like this is, this is something that is directly contributing to the well-being of the workers, the system. As I'm saying this though, I'm kind of troubled, Sarah, because if I choose to spend more money on childcare, then the way things are set up currently, almost by definition, my kid is going to be the kid benefiting from the better care and the better system, which kind of hurts other people down the road too, doesn't it? Yeah, that I mean, it gets a little, it gets a little sticky and weird because we don't have, you know, my my kind of school answer is like invest in public schools, invest in this public infrastructure that serves everyone. And we don't really have that for childcare. So certainly, you know, part of it is be part of the fight to to get it. Um, I, I think it's kind of just a mindset thing. To mm-hmm. some, it's like, there's a way to think about childcare that's very fear and sort of deficit based and like, you know, that my kid needs like the perfect program, you know, they need the highest end, they need all of that. I mean, I should also say there's not a direct correlation between the most expensive places and the places that pay their workers the best, you know, that's not, that's not a one-to-one comparison. Important point. You have to kind of dig a little bit to figure that out. So figuring out, yeah, like, do I need the top shelf childcare? Cause I'm very worried about my kid not getting into the, you know, right elementary school versus am I paying more because this is the place I've done my research and I know treats their workers well. It's just, it's, 
you might even end up at the same place. It's just kind of a different, mm-hmm. a different question, I think. Well, and I really like that you listed some questions in your book about asking, asking when you're looking for childcare for your child, ask them, what do they pay their workers? It's okay to ask. What are the employee benefits? And I think even by if parents start asking that question of daycare companies, I'll put that in air quotes, that's Mm going to raise their awareness of, oh, people are paying attention to what we're paying our workers, to what the benefits are. Do our workers get vacation? So if they're, you know, if they're a consumer, their person comes in and asks those questions, that's going to raise the issue. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's the hope. Um, Right. Because they, they are catering to parents' demands. And I think a lot of you know, I, a lot of the childcare marketing is all about, we have the wooden toys and we call ourselves Montessori, whether or not we're, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that term gets used very loosely in Brooklyn. It's very funny to me. Um, and um, all of those kind of like, we'll get your kid ahead. A friend of mine sent her kid to a, a daycare that said on its website, our alumni have gone on to such programs as enlisted like various prestigious preschools which I just thought was wow really hilarious like we're referring to three to, you know three-year-olds as alumni um, oh no like listeners you can't see me so just know that my mouth is literally like hanging open because not a thing where I live and wow 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 I know it was kind of apropos of nothing but I had to throw that in anyway so yes I but I do think that you know parents do have power as consumers of of this product to some extent again acknowledging that a lot of places they might give an answer you don't like to that and they're the only place that your kid got into i i don't want to pretend that's not yeah the unfortunate reality right now let's talk about schools uh, i am a huge proponent of public schools as well really strongly believe that, you know, we as a country need to invest in and support that. And for so many families, this is sort of a point where all of this crystallizes and becomes a very real thing. Because on the one hand, I may want to support my public school system. On the other hand, I am looking at my son, whose needs are not being well met in this system. I am looking at a kid who whatever their issue is, perhaps they have dyslexia and this particular school is not recognizing that or coming up with modifications for that. Or I simply have a very active, I'm not even going to say very active, a typically active (laughs) six-year-old boy who likes to learn by moving and doing, and that's not how the public schools where I am work. And my best option for my son is, let's say I'm fortunate enough to have a forest school near me. Right. So how can parents advocate for their boy's needs while still working towards a a, a just world? Yeah, I think it's it's a great question and it's not it's not an easy question at all because I I absolutely, you know, see what you're talking about all the time that now you know my daughter's only been in kindergarten for a few weeks and she's a kid who can hang in a school environment. She just is like, I drew that card 
I'm well aware that is not, you know, a card that every parent draws. It just, just as you know, knock on wood, we'll see. There we'll are see. a moment of chance here, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, um, and some kids simply cannot two things. I mean, there's, there's ways to support and be invested in public schools that don't involve necessarily sending your kid there. I think just being very aware that, you know, there are a lot of kids in public schools who might be better served by the forest school too, but it's not an option for their families. And if you can contribute to the forest school's scholarship fund and, you know, help and just try to kind of broaden the net a little bit beyond you know, your own kid and your own family. The schools chapter focuses a lot on how segregated our schools are um, by both race and class in this country. And there is a strong tendency, and I'm I'm not saying this is the case in, in every, for every family or every kid, but there's a very strong tendency for particularly white families to find, to look for reasons that it's not going to work you know, and mm. they, particularly if they, if their local public school is not majority white, that's just kind of a well-documented phenomenon. So I just think that we need to be aware of that as well. So like, what I hear you saying too, is be open-minded yes. and be willing to challenge yourself and your immediate assumptions, something that you, your first instinct might be, well, that will never work. Maybe it would. At least right. look into it, consider it, broaden your, your ideas a little bit. Yeah. And maybe it, and maybe it won't, you know, I, I interviewed a, a mom who's unschooling her, her two sons. It kind of bothers her that you know, she wants to, she's like, that this is an important movement um, to desegregate our schools. It's, this is not the way my family's going to show up for it. My kid's really can't hang in school it's really bad you know mm-hmm. for our family um and it's not about private versus public it's like the structured school day as a whole so that's a that's a very real reality one of the other things i think parents can do and i've tried to do in in my own way right you know i did opt out of the school system for a number of years and mm-hmm. homeschooled my children when they went back in school and I was seeing and recognizing things like, oh my gosh, taking away recess from my active first graders, not helping things. I also tried to tackle it on an institutional level in that, you know, I didn't just deal with my kid or just talk to my kid's teacher. I talked to the principal also. And I, you know, I did my best to advocate for other kids also Because this is not only an issue that is affecting my child. Like you said, there are other kids who are in the system who who may or may not have other people who have the time or energy or skills to advocate for them. So, you know, if something is not working for your kid, odds are your kid's not the only one that it's not working for. Very much so. Yeah. No, I think I think that's that's exactly right. And it it's I think it's hard to figure out the balance between being a good advocate for your kid and for kids who might be affected by it and being a hugely, you know, (laughs) overbearing parent who's trying to control everything about the school. I think it's, it's just, it's a tricky question. Um, But if you've broadened your lens beyond 
your own kid, you're already kind of ahead of the game in my view, because we're just, we're really encouraged, I think, to see ourselves sort of as, as consumers of schools that need to cater to our demands, particularly if you're a well-off parent, rather than like we are investors in an, in a crucial system that needs to exist for our kids and for all kids. That's a difference, I think. And there's a place where, you know, if you if you do have the privilege to be a stay-at-home mom, then that's a place where, hey, I can step up and, you know, be on the PTA, raise those, sell those cookies, whatever it is, but that you are affecting more than just your child's classroom and mm-hmm. make a bigger difference. And that's a way that you can help those families that have both parents working. Definitely. Yeah, right. I mean, we all have things to bring to the table, be it time, money, talents. If you if you go to a kind of school that's rich in resources, the broadening the lens beyond your school building, thinking about how you can serve them as a whole, you know, ideally um, we'd have a, an excellently funded system I'm curious, you mentioned the school district in Evanston, Illinois, that put all the money in one pot and equally dispersed that. Do you see that as something that's of interest and is taking hold in other places in the country? Yes. Um, yes. There's there's a few other cities that have made moves to towards it. I think Evanston's the first one that's really done a full redistribution, but the disparities have grown kind of so extreme that it has made um, a lot of people kind of uncomfortable in, in in various cities. So I think there's there's something like eight cities that have made some steps towards it. Um, I just got an email, you know, on my website contact form from parents interested in in trying it out. That's that's exciting. There's lots of lots of room for improvement on that front. Tell us about your website. You know, people who are listening and um, have the ability, uh, interest, time, and want to take a bigger step and are looking for some direction. Uh, Are there ideas on your website? Uh, Tell us what you have available and how you can help people. There's this um, little document that you can just get for free that um, was kind of a book promotion tool called the Parenting Values Journal. Um, that just kind of is some free association exercises to start identifying the values that are informing your parenting decisions, thinking about how happy you are with with those values, thinking about kind of what um, what issues might speak to you as an activist, kind of some of some of those questions. There is a resources page that has, I mean, that this book would not exist or be very interesting at all without um, the fact that a lot of people from some excellent organizations talk to me for it. The organizations that are kind of in the trenches doing work on these issues are featured on the resources page. So that includes everything from people doing the childcare work to the the end of the book talks about, you know, reparations and um, redistribution of wealth and those kind of projects. There's um, lots of wonderful, wonderful grassroots organizations, some of which you may have heard of, some of which you might not. I don't think we've said the name of the website yet. Oh, it's www.sarahwjaffe.com. 
and spell your your name because Sarah is a tricky one. Yes. S-A-R-A-H-W-J-A-F-F-E. Sarah's book is Wanting What's Best, Parenting, Privilege, and Building a Just World. Sarah, give us a takeaway for parents who are listening to this. Parents who want to build boys and also want to build a just world. The the best takeaway I got from writing this book was realizing how much fear of my daughter falling behind some sort of invisible metric or yeah, not just not, not being okay was influencing my parenting decisions. Um, and realizing that that fear is real, you know, it's, that's not going to go away. And I acknowledge that fear. Um, but also that being in community with people feeling invested um, in making systems that work for everyone is a really powerful antidote, I think, to that fear. And so that's what that's what I would encourage parents to do is try to uh, try to step away from the fear and into a sense of community and to doing what you can where you are. Um, Being in community with others helps us raise our boys and girls. Being in community with others helps us as we navigate the parenting challenges. And then we are naturally looking around and seeing that, oh, there are other people who have children. When we take this lens and think of our boys, our children, and extend that beyond our own families, we can effect powerful change for the better in this world. Sarah, thank you so much for writing your book, for talking with us today. Sarah's book, again, is Wanting What's Best, Parenting, Privilege, and Building a Just World. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you so much. So much to think about in this episode. And I encourage parents, talk to each other. Start talking about these issues so that you can be, if you choose, a part of the change in your community. Don't forget decoding your boy less yelling more connecting that is that program that you can join monthly with me we talk twice a month live and it's a lot of fun and talk about community we've got it there go to boysalive.com decode and you'll find all the details Thanks for being our listeners. If this episode has been of value to you, please share it with a friend. Thank you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line 
prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. 